This is an audio essay. To read the actual essay, go to mahanmccann.substack.com. The link is in the description on Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. Oh! Philosophical Guide to Self-Development, Part 10. In the last essay, we looked at René Magritte's The Son of Man painting as an image for the fallen, meaning-crisis individual. You might notice a similarity with the painting with the cover of my last book, The Man with a Mirror Face, which presents an intermediate character of the conscience which reflects our character like a mirror. In this essay, we'll be looking at Peterson's solution to the fall of man, looking at his fundamental weakness in the argument and strengthening it with Verveke's framework, and finally bringing it together for the last two essays where we're going to look at wisdom and virtue through metacognition and moral grounding. Peterson's solution to the fall. Peterson's argument is rooted in biology. The reason for rooting his essentially ethical argument in biology is to demonstrate the falsity of the postmodern predicament. Postmodernism rejects all grand narratives as arbitrary power games because of subjective theory of truth and human nature. In postmodernist thought, cultural systems, for lack of a better description, are imposed top-down to control people and are relative to one another. Peterson rejects this idea because he argues that biology constrains our morality. Human beings have inbuilt motivations and emotional systems that constrain the games we will voluntarily play. He equates morality to essentially a social game that we opt into or not. He argues you can force someone to play a game that is not fulfilling their needs, but that this won't work in the long run, like communism. His argument is the same as Plato's in the Republic, which is that to know what we ought to do, our ethics, we must first understand what we are, human nature. This is why most of the Republic is a human anthropology before looking into the actual virtues themselves. Postmodernism looks at people as socially constructed, has a blank slate theory of human nature. Thus, with no foundational anthropology to justify a universal ethics, all ethical systems are reduced to culturally relative power games. We looked at Peterson's cognitive anthropology in essay 3, but his first assertion is similar to Verveke's, which is to be a cognitive agent is to see the world through an implicit frame of value. In other words, we are finite, reality is infinite, and so we can only perceive reality through an implicit frame of value that simplifies complexity. The frame of value protects us from the dysregulating effects of chaos, uncertainty, anxiety, fear, and all that other stuff that we don't like. Peterson argues that the frame of value is essentially a narrative, or a categorical structure is another way of thinking of it. We see the world through these categorical structures. So in other words, we don't see objects, we see the functional categories which we place on them. This presents a solution to the problem of perception which ripped philosophy in two between ancient and modern philosophy. And it is a complex topic that many books have been written on, so it's beyond the scope of this paper to go into it in any great detail. But Peterson argues that what we perceive are functional patterns, not real objects. He argues this is the reason people are so enmeshed in their belief systems, because these categorical systems are constraining the chaos of the unrealized world. Therefore, the perception of an error in the categorical structure threatens to destroy the whole map and expose the individuals to the unrealized chaos. For example, 
if you have an intimate partner and you find out they have been having an affair for 10 years, this one revelation of your ignorance can cause a run on your judgment in general. If you couldn't see that case of infidelity, how can you trust your own judgment about anything else in your life? The error in the map calls the whole map into question, and then we are presented with a fundamental decision point. In the previous essay, we met the two problems of fundamentalism and nihilism, and these are two responses to the appearance of the unknown. The nihilist, when their frame of reference blows up, tries to identify with the chaos and rejects the map, while the fundamentalist tyrannically ignores the emergence of the unknown and tries to proceed with the maladaptive frame, a map that has been shown insufficient and then enforces it through possibly threatening and violence. These two poles are equivalent to the narrow categorical man who can't see what's right in front of his face, and the pure eternus who refuses to become enculturated and remains pure potential. However, both of these are suboptimal responses to the emergence of the unknown, as this unrealized world always lies around our categorical systems and thus threatens to take over perennially. So what is the proper response? Peterson argues the hero represents the third way, which is how we respond to the destruction of our frame of reference and being thrown into chaos. The hero, rather than wallow in chaos like the nihilist, or enforce an insufficient map like the tyrant, enters the unknown, confronts the dragon of chaos, slays the dragon or solves the problem, and gets the gold, which is a more integrated and developed map, essentially new information. The hero responds to the appearance of chaos by going on a journey of discovery, to identify the error which they have made, to sacrifice that error, which is a part of them, and as a result, a death. The hero is then reborn, better, faster, stronger, more adapted, ready to fight another day, saves the town, we've all seen the movies before. The hero views the encounter with chaos as an opportunity for self-transcendence, and in pursuing the truth, lets go of one's errors, gaining a better map than before. The map, however, is never perfect because the reality always outstrips our categorical structures, which is a problem of the finite confronting the infinite, and therefore intellectual humility is built into the ideal. We can see this clearly in the opposite of a hero, which is a psychopath, as the hallmark of psychopathy is refusing to attend to one's own errors, living parasitically on others and not taking responsibility for one's actions. This type of grandiosity and narcissism of believing that you know everything is antithetical to the attitude of the hero. In essay 8, we discussed the hero with Jung and how the hero enters the forest where it looks darkest to them, where they least want to go is where the most development will be found. Not exactly a recipe for a comfortable or easy existence, but the message is that the price of salvation is sacrificing everything that is not salvation. If you refuse to sacrifice, you become outdated by the changing reality, and hence corrupted. Rejecting the truth is the path to corruption. Therefore, if you want to put yourself together, you have to die and be reborn, sacrifice what is most precious, and that that is what real learning is. Plato's cave is an example of this type of heroic learning, which is education by transformation. As Plato said, philosophy is preparation for death. These transformative learning deaths, where one's knowledge structure is destroyed and updated, prepare one for actual death. The centrality of meaning in life for redemption. Facing chaos is rough. Temperamentally, we are not built for it, as chaos experiences anxiety, uncertainty and fear, so we have plenty of incentive not to face it. Peterson's argument is that to face up to the difficulty of the challenge, 
we aim at the highest good and that journey to the highest good outweighs the suffering and tragedy built into the rest of life. This is comparable to Pinocchio, which we discussed in episode 7, when Geppetto wishes on a star that his puppet son would become a real boy. This is the same wish that we should all make on ourselves to become self-realized and autonomous individuals. The vision of the highest good is mediated by the divine double, a vision of who you could be, the ideal future self. Peterson argues the tyrant identifies with who they are, the nihilist identifies with the chaos, but the hero identifies with who they could be. This could sound solipsistic, but Peterson argues that conceptualizing the highest good for your future self also implies your family, friends, economy, world, because we are not just individuals, but a community of individuals across time. Therefore, living in accord with your highest ideal of who you could be is also simultaneously to do the best across these other levels of analysis. As Verveghi writes, we need a higher vision of order that supersedes the warring parts of the psyche. Through the journey to actualize the vision of who we could be, we learn about who we really could be. And the ideal is updated and integrated and developed, destroyed, renewed, rebuilt. This is deeply comparable to the Neoplatonic quest to the one whereby you gain a greater understanding of the one on the journey. This all sounds good and well, but how do we know we are actually living out this redemptive path? How do we calibrate ourselves? Peterson argues that meaning indicates the zone of proximal development when we are optimally engaged in the exercise of actualizing our future self. This meaning that he is discussing is Csikszentmihalyi's flow. Peterson argues that the better we get at living in the meaningful zone, at the edge of our competence, the more actualized we will be, as this is living at the border between order and chaos. If there's too much chaos, we become anxious, too much order, we become bored. So the sweet spot is at that ever-expanding edge, which is developmentally optimal for us, because we are constantly facing challenge and expanding our competence, and hence ourselves. Peterson argues if you follow that thing that manifests you as interesting, as meaningful, it will lead you into adversity, a hero's journey, and that this will tap you into alignment and make you hard and durable so that you can bear the terrible conditions of life without becoming corrupt. The shining light that manifests as meaningful is not prepackaged information, and this will help you move forward towards the goals you have adopted as a good citizen and will lead you to transform the nature of those goals. What the narrow categorical individual is missing is meaning. And by gaining more information, you build yourself into a stronger, more actualized, complexified, coherent person. You inform yourself. In these moments, the activity you're engaged in is so worthwhile that you don't even ask if life is meaningful. You're in a flow. Peterson argues this is an intimation of paradise. If you remember from the last essay, when Adam and Eve walked unselfconsciously in the Garden of Eden, it is unsurprising that a paradisal, unselfconscious, optimal state would be equated to flow states. In the final part, Peterson argues that the Christian solution to the fall encapsulates all of this thinking. The solution to the fall is to ingest the body and blood of Christ, which is a symbol of death and rebirth, and accept the cross, which is the place that you would least want to go. The acceptance of voluntary suffering and the tragedy of life. So the solution to the fall, self-consciousness and death is to ingest the worst possible thing that you can imagine as an antidote and that this is accepting responsibility for the catastrophe of life and by accepting it you transcend it. In other words, you must be willing to die to really live.
In summary, if you identify with who you are, you become a tyrant. If you identify with nothing or chaos, you become a nihilist. But if you identify with who you could be, you become a hero. The journey to becoming who you could be forces you to face the error-riddled character of yours and to sacrifice the parts of yourself that are insufficient, which is self-transcendence, and offers a connection to true meaning and reality. And it is meaning that orients us in this fight towards our possible future self. So what happens if our meaning isn't oriented properly? That's what we will look at in the next section. The ethics of meaning. In Peterson's solution to the fall, he assumes that we have a natural instinct for meaning. He does mention that we can corrupt our instinct for meaning, but he thinks the default position is a functioning instinct. Peterson argues you corrupt this instinct through lying and attempting to bend the structure of reality, and that the corruption makes you morally blind and reliant on external authorities to guide you, which makes you prone to tyranny because you have lost the sense of meaning from your own actions. I agree with Peterson that this type of moral failing is one way to warp your sense of meaning, but in the modern meaning crisis world, without wisdom or spiritual traditions, I would argue our meaning instinct is warped by default. Hence why so many people don't have a stable source of meaning in their lives, at least 80-90% to of young people. It's a deficit of a skill rather than just a moral failing. Peterson does seem to recognise this when he says that religions have an emphasis on virtue to correct and orient corrupt individual meaning. And so we could see how a lack of wisdom and virtue institutions could lead to mass corruption of meaning on large scales. Either way, the question still remains, how do we fix or refine our instinct to meaning? We've equated meaning with flow states, a state of being that is psychologically and biologically optimal for people. However, the problem with flow states is they are amoral. As Verveke argues, the person who is breaking into your house in the night is probably in a flow state. Because of this ability to get into the flow state from the wrong activities, an addiction would be a great example of this, Verveke recommends that we have to flow wisely. In other words, the normativity of flow is obtained through wisdom and virtue. Philosophy is, of course, the love of wisdom, so everything we've discussed about philosophy in this series applies to cultivating wisdom. We've looked at this from essays 2 to 7 in the series, so we won't recount every detail. But in philosophy, wisdom is a kind of meta-virtue. Because to be courageous would be to be wise, or to be temperate would also be wise. It doesn't make sense to say somebody is a coward and wise, or somebody is an extremist and wise. In Aristotle's golden mean practice, we know virtue is the mean between two extremes, a deficit and an excess. So wisdom is the mean between foolishness and hubris. But how do we get in touch with this mean? How do we really know and cultivate wisdom? For Plato, the root of our self-destructive and self-destructive behavior was that we are not one thing. We are multiple subsystems which are optimized across different time frames that need to be integrated into oneself. And this process of integration is the same as having a functioning value system that works for today, tomorrow, and the future, which is the process of developing a single egoic self. Plato argued that we had an internal biological self that is only concerned with short-term salience like food, drink, sex, and a social self that only cares about honor and social gain, and then finally a human self which cares about the long-run truth and falsity but was motivationally weak compared to the others. This is comparable in economics to Daniel Kahneman's System 1 and System 2 thinking, which is very popular at the moment. As discussed at the start of the essay, once we have the human anthropology, what we are, we can then start to discuss the ethics, what we ought to be. 
It's important to note that the four cardinal virtues correspond to the three levels of the self-disgust. Temperance for the biological self, courage for the social self, and wisdom for the human self, and justice as the proper relationships between all three of them. There's a Wizard of Oz thing going on here where each part gets what they need to be perfected. However, since they are all interlinked, improving one may well improve the others. A rising tide carries all boats. But when we are talking about cultivating virtue and wisdom, we are talking about this perfection of the parts of the self, but also of the whole. And by virtue, pardon the pun, the integration of the self and the formation of a value system that will organize oneself across time. So we can see how this touches on everything that we've discussed so far. From the world of science, a new common model of wisdom was published by the Toronto Wisdom Task Force in 2019 and singled out two core concepts of wisdom, metacognition and moral aspirations or moral grounding. The Toronto Wisdom Task Force defined wisdom as wisdom is morally grounded excellence in social cognitive processing. Wisdom science is still in its early days, but for our purposes, this definition highlights the key features that we can discuss how to develop metacognition and moral grounding, which is what we will look at in the next essay, which is the second last of the series.